You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Hi, and welcome to The Compass, the podcast documenting the struggles of life as an artist. I'm Leah Walsh. My guest today is Nick Westrait. Nick is an amazing actor. We went to Juilliard together just for a year. He was a fourth year when I was a first year, and he was always so welcoming to me. He's had an extremely varied career since he left. He's done such wonderful theater work and is now working more in TV and film. And he's also become very active in working with our union, Actors' Equity. He's been very involved in the Fair Wage on Stage movement, which we'll talk all about in this conversation. I just want to say thank you to Nick. Frankie and I are about to move, and I was a little bit scattered the night of this interview. So thank you for putting up with me. And also, we recorded this at Nick's apartment with his lovely cat, so you might hear a cameo from her. Have a great week, everybody, and I hope you enjoy the 114th episode of The Compass. But you know, I always start by asking, what do you do to try to keep from going to the dark side as an artist? Yeah, um, I mean, I think that that question, as I've listened to the podcast, is um, I'm a fan of it. Um, I think that that question uh, is either how do you keep from going to the dark side when you're not working or how do you keep from going to the dark side when you are working? Yeah, whatever it brings to mind first and like yeah. what, what the dark side is for you most often. Um, the dark side for me usually has to do with uh, when I'm not working. Yeah. And I'm pretty um, unhappy about that and that dark place you get to where you think that, it, oh, this was all a big joke. Like I pulled a fast one over on a lot of people for 10 years <laughs> and now they've all come to realize that you're full of shit and you're never working again. Right. So um, it, for the first, I mean, I would say for the first seven or eight years of my career, it was easy to get away from the dark side because it was only about survival Mm-hmm. I was just trying to survive. I had so many jobs. I worked so many hours in restaurants and did so many plays for very little money that it was just a, it was just keeping up, just being able to go to sleep, wake up and hit all the marks was I was so it was so crazy to do that because I don't come from money. Um, my parents you know don't help me financially right. and so uh, it was just tough and then, when I got out of that, I had to find how do I stay creatively inspired while I'm not working. And that I've I found two things that have helped with that. One is um, to support my friends and my peers and my colleagues to kind of like champion them when I'm not working. I actually find helps me a lot, you know, to get out of myself and to celebrate other people. But the other thing I've done for a long time is work on um, union activism for the yeah. past couple of years with uh, um, uh, an organization called Fair Wage on Stage. And that is an amazing, I'm finding that union involvement, and I'm on a bunch of committees at Equity, it's a really great way to spend my downtime where I feel like I'm investing in my future and investing in other actors. And it's kind of my political action by being super local. Yeah. You know, and progressive politics always started in the union hall. And so I just work on that stuff. And that keeps me very busy. And most of the time keeps me away from the dark place. And still within the community. Yeah. And still within the yeah, community. Artists and-, and you meet loads of other actors with who are from different places who didn't go to Juilliard like us, who... Mm-hmm 
don't just do plays like we, or you know straight acting like we do you know who sing who are in choruses who are stage managers of broadway musicals you know it's really interesting to hear what their lives are like what first got you involved with that um i was at um an equity meeting actually giving uh, i was presenting an award to my friend tina banco and um, uh, it was a t- around the time the touring the touring contracts were really fucked up, mm-hmm. and there were all these young performers who were had basically stormed this meeting to be like, "Why the fuck are our contracts so bad?" And it was really overwhelming. And I ran into this guy Carson Elrod, who's an actor, and he we got in the elevator at Equity together afterwards, and he was like, "What if we did that with like the off Broadway people? What if we just all got together and, and yelled at the union a bunch? Do you think we could get more money?" And I was like. Maybe. And so then we just started calling people and inviting them over to Carson's living room, just anyone we knew who worked off Broadway a lot. And we all sat around and just like wrote down a list of all the fucked up things that were going on. And then we did that a couple times. And then we went into equity and we're like, hey, this is all the stuff that was going on. And they didn't know because there were two problems. There was like um, people who worked off Broadway were too poor, too grateful, and too afraid to complain. And the people at Equity weren't asking if everyone was okay. They just kind of assumed, oh, we just thought you guys liked working for $464 a week. But because Which there was, has some problems with it already. Sure, sure. But, but people weren't speaking up about it. Yeah, and I think that there's a lot of mentality about being grateful for the work. There's yeah. a lot of mentality about being paid in exposure, uh-huh. which turns out you can't pay your rent in exposure. That's true. Um, oh my God. And there's a lot of, you know, and you think that at first, and then you do it long enough, and you realize that there are people who've been making careers out of this, and you're like, how the fuck did it happen? Yeah, because there's no guarantee. Like, they, you say it's exposure, but there's no guarantee that, oh, if three off-Broadway plays equals one Broadway play, and then yeah. that equals another Broadway play, and, like, right. it just doesn't work that way. And my own story was I did four broad, off-Broadway plays consecutively, and in that year, I won a Drama Desk Award for it. Right. And I declared bankruptcy a few days after the Drama Desks. Oh which, and I've been really open about that. But I think what happened with that Fair Wage on Stage movement was a lot of us finally talked about it. And we all just opened up our bank accounts to each other. And we're like, they're all empty. And that kind of erasing of financial shame right. helped us solve the problem. Because we sometimes as actors like to jockey and pretend... Um, everything's great and we're doing really well and we present that as armor and we think that that makes us more appealing and I've actually found it just makes you less honest and doing that all the time actually is like hurting my work and being honest it's exhausting exhausting. to pretend you're doing well yeah that's partly why I started this podcast (laughs) (laughs) really yeah wow because I felt like people were just walking around saying oh I'm great auditioning everything's great you're like, it, I was like, this is fucking hard. <laughs> Why are you all faking I'm it? Not happy. <laughs> yeah, Can it's we talk really, about this? it's really fucking hard. Yeah, yeah. and we. I but mean, a lot of a lot of people in in lots of professions have that kind of secrecy and like shame about money, and you're not supposed to talk about it. And what's happening now that we're seeing in the news currently with the teachers in West Virginia and Oklahoma, mm-hmm. and Kentucky, is that because of social media, when people are talking about it more, and that was true with us with Fair Wage. Because of social media, we're talking about it, and it's not, you know, we can affect change in our unions uh, in a much different way than we used to be able to, you know, and that's really exciting. And these teachers on these wildcat strikes are proving that. I mean, their, their union leaders told them to go back to work, and they said, no, that raise isn't good enough. 
and we need supplies for our schools. Well, and the fact that we across the country know about it and mm-hmm. are talking about it. Yeah, we know all about it. We know uh, yeah. within an instant. And we can support them. We can donate. We can give five bucks. We can give two bucks. You know, um, it's extraordinary. So what are you guys, what is it, what are your efforts looking like now? Because I know some things have already been implemented. Yeah. Will I mean, be implemented over the next couple of years. We got a huge, huge raise um, in off-Broadway salaries. I mean, up to 83% and the largest space at the public theater, which is really exciting. And a lot, and I have to say like a lot of artistic leaders really, even though we're negotiating across the table and so mm-hmm. a lot of them really showed up and heard us when we said there was a problem and responded in a really great way. Um, so, you know, we got a bunch of people elected to the equity council and we're doing that again right now. There's another election right now. Everyone should vote. And, um, so that's a huge part of it. It's a representative democracy. It's super accessible. Um, to run for something and we also just sit on a lot of committees and in the committee room you can affect change really really quickly you know that's where you decide a theater will come to the union and say oh we don't want to do this this and this that's part of the contract and in the committee room we look at that theater and see if they have a legitimate reason to ask for that concession or if we think no we would like our members to have that money or we would like them to have that extra 10 minutes on a break or something you know and it's, it's long work that's unpaid, but you actually feel like you're making a difference during this downtime when you're not working. Right. Yeah. And I was out of work for six months this year, and then, you know, I'm out of work all the time. Yeah, everybody is. Yeah, constantly. Um, yeah, that's really exciting, because I, I, I'm looking forward to it all coming to fruition. Because yeah. I have to, like, recently I've had, I had conversations with two friends who just are finishing or finished amazing shows off-Broadway. And both of them made the comment of like, God, I'm fucking broke. Yeah. Yeah. And they were like finishing up a contract of something that was an amazing piece of art at a really well respected theater. I'm just and like, probably with a really so nice lobby. Wrong. Yeah. So we just, sad we to have to change that. the conversation. Um, and the, the people, when people are raising money, uh, they need to make workers a part of that conversation and not just buildings and they need to make stage managers and actors part of that conversation because we have a lot of grants for playwrights we have a lot of grants for directors but that's for me it's a greater question of uh the structure the power structure of the theater in general or the film and tv world where the performers are put in last and we have to adapt to everything else that's happening and we're the last thought of yeah and that's got to change, you know, and that and that's an economic thing and it's an artistic thing. Do you have any other creative outlets that you tap into when you're between jobs? Are you a writer? Or I'm, I'm not like really that? a writer. I started writing something <laughs> with a friend this year and I find it to be incredibly difficult. Yeah. But we're having fun. Um, I have... I'm working on the second piece that I'm kind of directing, putting together. Oh. I did one with a friend of mine, Dane Laffrey, who's a set and costume designer. He and I directed this Three Sisters over the course of many years um, with a group of amazing actors, and we ended up just doing it in a house in New Jersey for maybe 25 people. I wish I could have seen one that. One time. It was really, it was really, <laughs> sp- it was the, I always say it was like the best day of my life. Um, <laughs> but we had, it, it's that thing, that very actor cliche thing about Chekhov when you work on it that long and right. you know each other this well and you know the right. characters that well, like how deep you can go. 
And then I'm starting to work now with my friend Aishan Chalik on this Orpheus Descending piece that's, um, you know, we're, we just start working on it and then we put it together and uh, it's uh, actor focused and it's a lateral rehearsal process that is mainly, that is mainly just, it's focused on the actors and then we're going to go back and have designers come and watch and have a couple of theaters who we're interested in working on it with come and watch the work of these incredible actors who've been working on it now. I think we, we're going to go into our third workshop in May. And uh, yeah, so I do that and I read a lot of uh, fiction. Yeah, what kind of fiction do you like? Or do you read all sorts of things? Uh, yeah, I read a lot of things. I really love David Mitchell, who's an author who wrote Cloud Atlas and um, A Thousand Autumns of Jacob de Zoot. Um, I've really fallen in love with a short story writer named Lucia Berlin. Hmm. Um, I just, I'm really, um, oh, who is that? Um, who wrote Olive Kitteridge, Elizabeth Strout. Oh. I really love. Yeah, I'm reading a great book right now called The Essex Serpent. I have a couple little book clubs with different groups of friends. I, I have a that. book club with a friend that's just about true crime. We just finished Anne Rule's The Stranger Beside Me and Michelle McNamara's um, book about the Golden State Killer, which is called I'll Be Gone in the Dark, which is amazing. Ooh. Yeah. Do you feel like you're in New York for the long haul at this point? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I love New York. Yeah. I love being in New York, and I love living here. I, I don't think I don't think I could exist without being around theater and being around people who see plays and read plays and not being able to see plays would make me crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Because you grew up in Minnesota. M Michigan. Michigan. I knew that. Michigan. I don't know why I decided Minnesota. Um, yeah, I grew up on a Christmas tree farm in southwestern lower Michigan. Yeah. So it was very different than New York. But I moved here when I was 18. I went straight to to Juilliard and um, I drove an Oldsmobile Cutlass Sierra into the city and parked in the parking garage under Juilliard oh my god and like brought up my bags and they're like you can't park down there <laughs> <laughs> and then did street parking for like the first week and then I drove it to my aunt's house in Connecticut like, I can't have this <laughs> <laughs> I can't keep moving the car at 1030 <laughs> I have to be in class so yeah it's very different but I love New York I love everything about it yeah I like going to California sometimes but yeah and when you were on, on turn, you got to spend quite a bit of time out and, of the city. Yeah, I was in Richmond, Virginia, yeah. which is a really cool town, actually. It's nice. That was so nice because it was close enough that I could come back on a train or I would drive sometimes. But it was a beautiful, beautiful area. Yeah, just get some time in nature and somewhere yeah. a little smaller. Yeah, and like different restaurants. <laughs> and like, you know... I love going to the movies. I go to the movies all the time. Yeah. And I love like a big multiplex in a small city. Yeah. You know, no one's in it. And you can just see your movie at two o'clock in the afternoon and no one's there. It's great. Do you enjoy working on camera? Um, I'm enjoying it more and more. It's not, it's not, I don't enjoy it like I do in the theater. Yeah. But I also don't think I've figured it out yet uh, fully. Uh, it's, uh, it's funny, I was shooting an episode of something the other day. And I thought, God, I wish someone at Juilliard would have just explained to us what all these terms mean, because it's another example of actors being, I literally, like, it's taken me 10 years of working on screen to actually understand what's going on on the set and to be a right. good co-worker, 
you know, <laughs> to know, you know, and it took, it was actually the, I got a lot of confidence from being on turn because I was a regular and there's some confidence in the contract. Like they have, I have to be in a certain amount of the show and like they have to pay me a certain amount of money and can't get rid of me basically. Right. You're not wondering each time you're there if you're coming If back. I'm going to be invited back. Yeah. Right. Like, um, which also that's such has a funny way to put it. I know, but it also has so little to do with our behavior, but that's kind of like how our minds work in those right. situations, or at least my mind works in those situations. Um, but it, and on that show, I was one of the reasons I'm so grateful to have done it is because I got to ask so many questions, stupid questions, right? You know, our DP on that show is named Marvin Rush and he's a brilliant man. And he would say something, he would say, you know, we're going to do this in French reverse. Okay, come on, everyone get ready. I was like, Marvin, hi, I don't know what, what French reverse mean? is. What does that mean? Because I didn't go to film school. I went to acting school. I don't school. know what that means. Tell me. <laughs> I know. I would love to know. And I, I actually really wish we would have gotten some film classes like that. You yeah, know? I mean, we got like one. Yeah. But I don't really... I don't even think in my time we even got one. I mean, we would like... I feel like it was more about auditioning on camera. It was all about auditioning. Um... And it was always with a casting director. And ca- I mean, casting directors are brilliant, but they're not on a film set shooting a scene every day. Right. So, you know, when they talk about, like, the size of a lens, you know, when they just shout what we're moving down to, you know, I can kind of guess what that means, but actually knowing what that lens looks like and knowing what the shot is going to be and how to calibrate my performance based on it is a different thing, you know? Mm-hmm. So yeah, it's it's a fun, crazy world, and I I'm real. I but now it's I haven't done a play in two and a half years because I just don't do them anymore because I can't make any money. Yeah. So now I, I've been pretty exclusively working on film and TV, which I do enjoy, and I'm like I said, I'm learning a lot about. But uh, I want to come back to the theater so much, and it breaks my heart that I most of the time can't afford to do it. Do you still audition, or have you just been kind of telling your agents? I will, yeah. I like I, I'll I audition for, think about it. I, yeah. I do still audition for stuff if I really love it. If I really love it, I'll audition for it. Yeah. But it, it takes a lot. It would take yeah. a, you know, there are a couple plays I would love to do that I hope to do in the next year. But it's really hard. It's just I, when you walk away at the end of a run, having made three thousand dollars for twelve weeks of work. Oh, it's harsh. It's a harsh reality. Yeah. Yeah. Um, is there anything else that you learned through that process of having to declare bankruptcy that year after doing all of that work that you want to share with people that you learned about that process or, um, do it early. Don't wait. (laughs) Like the longer you wait, the stupider it is, you know, to get done. It was really freeing. I mean, I also at the time didn't own any property. I was like 26 years old. I didn't own a car. I didn't own an apartment. So it was super easy to get done, to get all that discharged. Um, I put a whole lot of undue stress on myself and a lot of angst. I was also doing a really long run of a play at the time. So it was like, which, which was also a really emotional play. And it was just like a very, it was a super stressful period of my life. But made it through and it was fine I but you know like in your mind when you don't know what's going to happen with those kind of things my mind goes to like oh my god someone's going to come and arrest me I remember like being right. in a rehearsal room at New 42 I was like the cops are going to come they're going to come and get me I'm going to be no sick. it's just something you wouldn't know how to handle like were yeah. there any resources that you ended up using to ask for help that you I ended up just calling my dad and Sounds, he ended up yeah, helping my, yeah, <laughs> my dad <laughs> he just ended up helping me out yeah and yeah. it was great 
Um, and I'm a lot more financially healthy now. And uh, <laughs> I really know how to deal with these things. I read a lot of Susie Orman. Um, <laughs> I follow her on Twitter. <laughs> no, it's money is so weird and hard. And especially in this business, it's so inconsistent that it, the more we talk about it with each other and the more we're open about it, you know, no, the it's better. So hard. And I feel like everybody goes through that period where you need to have something kind of strike where you get from that place of like, oh, I'm just paying my bills every month to, oh, I have a little bit in my savings. Right. Yeah. I'm a little bit more comfortable, whereas it's not draining completely every month. Yeah. And then that makes a huge difference, like whatever that is. It makes a huge difference. Huge and that's, difference. I mean, back to the whole fair wage thing, even though I like a broken record with it, we have to... Um, get to a place, especially in New York City, but around the, all over the country, where theaters, these multi-million dollar institutions, start taking responsibility for the artists that um, keep them alive and make them successful. Like, we not only have to be able to pay our bills while we're working, we need to be able to save and invest in our futures. Yeah. And it's, uh, I remember someone telling me from a long time ago that in um some negotiation a producer was overheard saying, well, you heard about these actors, they're buying houses now. What? As if that was like the most absurd thing anyone ever heard. She's like, yes, we're humans who need shelter. Oh my God. Yeah, it's crazy. <laughs> but that's, that's the perception. And so we just have to keep repeating, like we're human beings. Artists aren't actually supposed to be starving. No, it's not. Or there won't be any left. Right. It's not romantic and it doesn't help you be an artist. You know, I, it took me a little while to come out of that mentality that suffering was helpful, mm -hmm. that uh, being poor was helpful, that any of the, that sweet were the uses of adversity. Bullshit. <laughs> Like, you can't rehearse when you're hungry because you literally can't concentrate. You know, you'll fall down. And that's not fun, you know. I remember I was doing the first big movie I ever did. I was still so broke waiting for this paycheck. And I was waiting for the van, one of those van. We were shooting, you know, a little upstate. And uh, Was this the one you did with Gabe? Yeah, with yeah. Meryl Streep. And Gabe. And Meryl Streep. And whatever. Meryl Streep and Gabe Eager. <laughs> and yeah, and Gabe and lovely Lisa Joyce. And um, anyway, my there were holes in my boots and my feet were wet. And I was oh like, God. oh, I'm going to have these wet feet when I get to work. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to put the socks on the radiator in the trailer. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and I was like, okay, when you get paid, you're going to get a really nice pair of boots. <laughs> and I did. I did. But it was Good just one of those things where, like, even in these moments where you think it's so, you're so fabulous and everything yeah. should be fine. You're like, you're still catching up. That when Frankie first got looking, he did the pilot and then we had all summer and we had gotten married and like that money kind of like went away. And then when we, I went out to San Francisco with him in the fall for season one and he'd ended up not getting paid for like, he didn't get his first check for like two months or something. And I, so I was temping full time, like, and luck luckily, because we had to pay rent and like buy food yeah. <laughs> for those first like month and a half, two months when he's shooting this HBO show and not getting a check yet. <laughs> it was insane. It's so great. I, it's, I mean, and even that's the other thing, too. Like when I was doing Turn, people were like, oh, well, you know, you can do this. You can do that. And it's like, no, I make a 
it's also like my first show. Like I make a middle class living doing that show. And this is, I'm not deeply involved in SAG politics, but you know, even on that, like I was guaranteed seven out of 10 episodes and then I was held for an entire year and couldn't do regular work on any other show. It has to pay for your life for the rest of the year. That's the whole year. And they really do take it up. And that's something that uh, in the writer's strike, they were addressing very fully was like, how do we, Mm. how do we shorten these holds and stuff like that? Yeah. And that's something, you know, and I don't mean to like, oh, cry, poor me, you know, I'm on a television program, because it's not that at all. It's just like, it's never... It's not the fantasy that people make it up to be. No, it's never as easy as you think it's going to be. Yeah. Do you have any artistic mentors you've found along the way in your career? Oh, that's such a good question. Yeah. Um, I've had different artistic mentors at different times. Um, the first and kind of most important, oh, I don't know, most important, but very important was Daniel Fish, mm-hmm. who gave me my first job out of Juilliard. And we've done two full plays together and messed around creating lots of other weird work. He really taught me how to speak verse. I, I feel like it, the way he taught me how to speak verse. What was that play? Uh, the first play was Merchant of Venice at the California Shakespeare Theater okay. in Berkeley. Um, what a beautiful! I've been there. It's so gorgeous. Space. And there were so and there were so many brilliant actors in that, like Jenny Bacon and David Chandler and Andrew Weems, mm-hmm. who have remained my friends. Um, and Sam Gold, who I went to Juilliard with, was a kind of mentor to me in school and would take me to see lots of avant-garde work. Like he introduced me to the work of the Wooster Group mm-hmm. and Eva Van Hova and Richard Foreman, and I would I would really bucked at it a lot and thought it was, I didn't I was it made me really angry and upset, and he would always like really talk me through it mm-hmm. and make me go see it again with him, and uh, now that's like my favorite kind of work and it's all I ever want to do and I right. got to go on to work with Evo which was a really important. Um, which is the greatest play I've ever done in my life was uh, the Little Foxes that he directed. Yeah, I remember. Yeah, it was great. And um, that carpet, that purple carpeted box. (laughs) I'll show you this beautiful photo I have of it later. His partner Jan Weiersfeld, who does those sets and clothes, it's so amazing. He, I just emailed him a little while ago. I was like, "Do you have any prints of those photos?" He was like, "Oh, Nikki, I'll send them right away." And he sends me all these gorgeous five by sevens of this. Well, he takes. He's a photographer too, and during tech, he's always on stage, like taking these incredible shots of the show from every angle. Yeah, they're really cool. And who are some other artistic mentors? I mean, it's so many. You learn so much. I've learned so much out of school from people I got to work with, who were who had been doing it longer than me, like in that show, Beth Marvel and Thomas J. Ryan and mm-hmm. Tina Benko, um, who have all remained friends and whose work, who I've just, I worship their work, you know, yeah. and working next to them. Um, I've done three things with Mayor Winningham, who's one of the, we did Mildred Pierce together on HBO and we did Tribes together at the Barrow Street and we did Casa Valentina together. And she's, I wouldn't say she's a mentor in the sense that I ask her questions, but acting next to her is like singing next to someone with perfect pitch. Hmm. It's like you can't be untruthful next to Mare. It's just impossible because you can hear, you can almost hear yourself being false. Um, And Reed Burney is the same way. And um, doing Casa Valentina with Reed was uh, just a dream. It was a complete oh dream. My God. I know. We all have those people that you're just like, oh, if I could be in every play with you, I oh would. Oh, my God. I know. Uh, yeah. 
I, I'm so lucky. And I've luckily got to work with Aishan Shalak a lot, who's one of my favorite actors on the planet. And we're still making stuff together. And um, like again, peer mentors too, you know, who you learn so much from. And um, I just love other actors. I love being, I love working with weird different actors and yeah, they're my favorite people. Are there any lessons you've learned over the last couple of years that you're really proud of that you want to tell me about? Oh God. It could be, um, it could be a little thing. Hmm. A way you've changed the way you live your life or something like that. Um, I mean, I guess I'm, I'm becoming a little bit better at forgiving myself Mm. you know um I don't know maybe like it's a big thing yeah maybe like I don't remember how long out of school it was that I realized what like Alexander Technique was about like that is about forgiveness you know that like that idea that you could always renew the thought yeah and you couldn't fix something you could only do something else you know you can't undo you, you can only well that idea of releasing too yeah just release and and that That's you oh you did that this time you're not, it doesn't mean you're gonna do it next time, you yeah. know it's fine. You're not always that person for the rest of your life. I've learned that about myself, or I've started to try to practice forgiveness. It's a great lesson. Yeah, it's hard, <laughs> but it's good, especially in live theater. It's yeah. really important. You have to forgive yourself like three thousand times a night. You know, I'm bad at least 3,000 times a performance and I have to forgive myself for that and try to do something good. Yeah, I've tried to get better about that because I am definitely somebody who will like think over, like reanalyze that moment a million times yeah. and like just give myself anxiety about it. And it's like it already happened. It's and gone. maybe other people didn't even notice it. Yeah. Because they were probably thinking about themselves. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm torturing myself about yeah, it. Yeah, you're, you're thinking about it way more than anybody else is thinking about it. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, this all makes sense leading up to, I wanted to ask you about when you were doing that process and performance series in your theater workshop, because yes. everything we just talked about with mentors and you loving other oh actors gosh. and stuff, I feel like it all makes sense. It's but. so, it's so, and it's also such a cousin to what you're doing here. I mean, that was kind of yeah. pre podcast yeah. days and we would, I only got to come to one or two of them, but. Oh, thank you for coming. Um, it was so. Um, I asked people <laughs> so hard about trying to get people there. I, yeah, that was, I loved that. I, um, that was what? 2012, maybe? No, earlier than that. 2000, maybe 2011. Okay. 11 and 12, maybe 11 and 12. We did two seasons of it at New York theater workshop and it was a conversation series called process and performance that I developed with Jim and Linda who run that theater and Rachel Silverman, who is the artistic administrator at that theater and Ra- Rachel and I really did most of it. Um, together with Jim, Jim and Linda's guidance. Um, and it, I would interview performers who I thought and consider, and most people consider like the kind of masters of the downtown avant-garde theater. So we interviewed, I interviewed Ellen Lauren, mm-hmm. David Greenspan, Elizabeth Marvel, Kate Volk, uh, Taylor Mack, Ruth Malachek, um, Thomas J. Ryan, Henry Stram, Bill Camp, Lola Paschalinski, um, um, oh gosh, I'm forget people. I'm, I'm forgetting people already. Um, <laughs> all of the Nature Theater of Oklahoma, who I love them, those people. Um, they're so crazy. Um, Pig Iron, Dito van Rygersberg, uh, Juliana Francis Kelly, and David Patrick Kelly, who are so great, who did so much work with Richard Foreman. Um, and they were 
it, I think I, I have a bit of an obsession with people I think who are undervalued or not known or understood. And I also am obsessed with, like I was talking about earlier, how people don't take our contribution to a work as seriously, you know? Like usually if you're talking about um, Eva Van Hova's work, because we did like a night of Eva Van Hova performers, uh, you think it's all Evo and Jan, yeah. and that's like just their thing. But what the performers do in those shows and what all those, and I know what those performers have in common because I've been with them and I've been one of them, is very specific. And it's a very specific set of skills that you use to do that work. And I'm interested in actors understanding what that is in the same way that like Ruth Malachek talking about um, working with Samuel Beckett in Paris. It's like, that's a particular skill set, And she unfortunately has passed away, but she was the only person we had in New York who could talk to us about working with Samuel Beckett. <laughs> You know, and she's so brilliant and directed and created so much of her own work as well that it was just really valuable to me to share that with other actors, you know. I mean, Kate Volk, who is uh, my favorite actor alive from the Wooster Group, it was, she was so was so interesting and, and thought of it in such a different way than the rest of us do. She has a, a completely different process. She's been at the Wooster Group for 40 years and not worked anywhere else. Right. You know, she'll occasionally do a part in a film made by a friend. My God. It's that crazy. It's like a dream. Yeah, actually. I know. It's, it's a total <laughs> no, dream. No, to create your own artistic home and then just never leave. I know. That's my fantasy world. Is I mean, in my, it's the same way like the Nature Theater of Oklahoma folks for a very long time were only doing Nature Theater and they all you know, resigned from the union because it was easier for them to tour hmm. without the restrictions, you know, of a union contract and... They're so brilliant, and they got to do that for a really long time and make incredible work. I mean, they're not making loads of... It's also an incredibly difficult way to survive, well, too. That, well, that's the thing when you say, like, undervalued. Mm. But these are all people who, like, have no names, and I, I guess to a certain crowd, they're extremely well-known and revered. Yeah. And But then if you think of, like... It depends on what you're looking at as, like, the community. If you're looking at Hollywood, if you're looking at... Broadway. People who know about Broadway, maybe they haven't, you know? Yeah, and it's also like goes to what our value system is. Is your value in this business fame or is it artistic um, achievement or is it both? What do people define en entertainment as? Or yeah. like or art, art. As. Yeah. Like, do they want to just be entertained or do they want to be challenged yeah and like what do you define as success and that yeah. varies and it's varied for me in my life as I get older where are you with that now I mean right now I just I just Such a troublesome <laughs> word <laughs> I know I just want to I just want to I just need to do good work that also pays me enough to live um, and I'm figuring out that balance. I'm, I'm still figuring out that balance and trying to still make my own work and hopefully do some uh, work that I find really exciting, balanced with work that is lucrative. Because I, I don't have a, a, a company that I can go and work for and live with, you know. I would love to. I would love to, like, learn Dutch and go and work for, beg Evo for a job at Tuneel Group Amsterdam <laughs> and just stay there forever. Oh It'd be amazing. I mean, it'd be the greatest thing that ever happened to me. <laughs> um, <laughs> what does your family make of your choice to be an artist for your career? 
Um, they're they're pretty cool with it. They were pretty supportive and. Um, Are any of them creatively inclined? My sister and I both played the piano and did community theater growing up, so it was a little bit of a competition. And she kept playing the piano until college, and she doesn't play professionally, but she still plays, you know. And my mother is an amazing craftsperson. She's like weaves baskets and she makes clothes and she's an amazing she can sew anything in the universe she mm. paints you know she does she's a very very artistic person and my father is an intellectual my father's a historian and an author so yeah so they were all I mean they were all leery about it but then you know in terms of uh, value judgments or validation like I went to a high school called Interlochen Arts Academy which right. is pretty very well respected very well respected and like you have to audition to get in so when that happened they were supportive and they, they paid for me to go there and then when you get into Juilliard, you know, you think, oh, you know, everything's going to be fine. And they're actually getting a lot better with knowing not to ask <laughs> about certain things. <laughs> yeah. Did you have any auditions this week or right, how do right. they go? And you're just right. like, please don't. Like, I will tell you. I will, I will I'll be call so you excited first. To tell I will you. call you up. <laughs> I'll call you on the telephone. Yeah. But doing turn was a real, because my dad's a historian. It was like, yeah. uh, I mean, like, he was Did so Did that like happy. give you guys something you could kind of share? Oh, yeah. You could always, I, whenever I had an interview for that show, I would just call my dad first and be like, can you talk me through the Battle of Yorktown, please? <laughs> That's so fun. And, yeah. It was like preparing for a, like an history exam in high school. <laughs> Just go talk to my dad about it for 10 minutes. Oh, my God. He must have been so thrilled. Like, not only are you on a TV show that he can watch at home, like... Yeah. It's something that's... Yeah, they love that. In his Oh, my gosh. It's totally in his wheelhouse. Yeah. It was great. It was great. And then there's some, you know, some tougher times. Like, um, I think Casa Valentina was a little hard <laughs> on them. And I love that play. I love that play, too. I think it's great. Um, but, yeah, you know. No, they're very supportive and nice people. Follow-up on process and performance. Oh, yeah. I... S- I was Google searching and saw that your blog might still be up from it. Or are there any like It's all still up on YouTube. You can you see any of those interviews on YouTube except for Elizabeth Marvel's unfortunately, oh, which got lost. Some uh, something I think we I think there was an intern who didn't press record on that Damn video. It. And Ruth Malachek's you can't see because Ruth expressly requested not to be taped. Okay. And she was very specific about it. And then after it, after the evening, I took her for a glass of wine across the street and then helped her into a cab. And she said, thank you for respecting my wishes. Those who were with us tonight were with us. And those who were not, were not. I mean. And she took it. And that was the last time I ever spoke to her. But it was such a beautiful idea that she believed in the live event. Theater, yeah. Yeah. Well, and that's so, there's so much, you know, oral history of what we do. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and the idea of someone having worked with someone else who you'll never get to work with. or That's yeah. how I always felt about um, Moni at school. You got to work with Moni, Yes, though. but yeah. like just the people he got to work with. This right. is our, one of our movement teachers at school who was a mime in Paris and like Marcel Marcel. started Juilliard. And you just has worked with all these amazing people. You just feel like, oh, I'm somehow through osmosis learning. That's how I feel about John Sticks. Yeah, who I you never... Know. He, oh, yeah, you didn't have John. He passed away the year before I started, sadly. He was the the funny thing, talking about um, changing habits. John, I was a real student uh-huh. when I showed up at you school. You were going to get it right? I was going to get it all right the first try. Yes. I was going to get A's and everything. And I was writing, writing, writing furiously in my notebook in John Stick's first year acting class. 
and he was a, a very small man and a, a short. And by the time he taught me, he was 81. I picture him like Yoda. He was very That's much like Yoda. You never really knew if he was awake or not, <laughs> but he always was. His eye, he just saw through his eyelids. Um, <laughs> and I was like furiously writing down something he was saying, and he kept looking over at me annoyed. And then finally he walks over to me, grabs my pen and notebook, crosses all of 304, and throws it in the trash. And he comes back and goes, you don't write for four years. <laughs> and in class, like teachers would, unless we we're doing like IPA or something, like they would ask, they would, he, he instructed them. Oh my God. So I would never write anything down. And I do now, I write notes down, like especially during tech if it's, you know, but I don't write down during rehearsal anything. He changed my entire process. He really, I had to practice being present and um, huh. I did. And now I'm a f- fucking disaster. I don't write anything down. <laughs> I'm getting better now with a I computer and eye calendar. Like you, I have so many notebooks from Juilliard that. Oh, yeah. I have Part none. of me wants to get rid of them because I have so much stuff that I'm sure I'll never touch again. But some of them, I'm like, I'm. Who knows what random things I wrote in those notebooks that one day I'm going to want to look back That's on? That's true. No, if you have them, you should keep them. I mean, how big can notebooks be? Right? I'll just get rid of all the speech. Like worksheets and stuff. <laughs> you still have those worksheets? Some of them. I slowly, so I go crazy. through all the time and like weed stuff out. That's so crazy. But the notebooks I'm keeping. Um, I don't really think I have write <laughs> down anything else. I'm just trying to remember um, if there's, yeah, if there's something that, um, oh, I you know, I that do. you wanted to talk about. That I what else did I want to talk about? What are your favorite podcasts that you're listening to right now? I listen to so many. Do you? I listen to so many podcasts. Who are your podcast idols? I mean, Terry Gross. <laughs> Fuck yeah, Terry Gross. If you need to pass down fresh air to somebody, please call me. Oh my God, you would be so good at fresh air. Uh, Dan Savage. Oh yeah, I love Savage, Savage Love. love. I remember reading, um, I just remember being so excited to read it in The Voice every week. Oh the yeah, village yeah. voice like before smartphones and the train when you were bored you used to have to like try to find a village yeah. voice at three in the morning that wasn't soaking <laughs> wet so you could take it for your long train ride back He's to harlem just amazing and the way sometimes he'll articulate something in such a way that i'm like that makes so much sense yeah you just make so much sense he makes so much sense i mean i listen i i listen to all the political podcasts the slate and the npr mm-hmm. and all of those um there's a like a parenting podcast called The Longest Shortest Time. Yeah, from WNYC. Yeah. Yeah, it's great. It's like kind of like This American Life, but mm-hmm. about parenting. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to be a parent to enjoy it. And I've listened to it for like a couple of years, and it's I really love that one. Like it's that so kind good. of storytelling. That like. I'm obsessed with my favorite murder. I know a lot of people are. I've listened to yeah. a few episodes, or sometimes they love crossover episodes with other mm-hmm. things I listen to. Mm-hmm. Um, I haven't gotten super into it, but I'm a big true crime person. It's like my favorite thing on earth. Yeah. Yeah. I love true crime. It's not really my favorite thing on earth. Um, <laughs> what else should I talk? Oh, I know what else I want to talk about. What? Being gay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, I like talking about being a gay person all the time. Um, no, I just think How that it factors into your artistic life. Yeah, I think it factors into my artistic life hugely. I think it because it makes me smarter and better than all the rest of you. No, <laughs> um, no, it's just it's, it's such. Um, I've, I'm having so many really cool conversations with gay artist friends of mine lately about what we need to have happen to move everything forward, and what's still really backwards. 
you know, that isn't happening. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think it. I think that we're at like a point where I think we're almost at a breaking point. Like I did the last revival of the boys in the band, which was yeah. in 2009. And to see a cast of the boys in the band now that is all gay men, I can't even tell you. It's so, it's so exciting. Like no matter what your feelings are on that play, it's an old play, which I happen to really love because I had a really good time doing it. But I know that lots of people have problematic feelings about the play. It's just so exciting what Joe decided to do with the casting. And that's, it's a really big fucking deal, you know? And um, one day we're going to have, though it's not the same thing, and like racism and homophobia are not the same things, but like that Halle Berry moment when she won the Oscar for Monsters Ball, like one day an openly gay person is going to win an Oscar for acting. And uh, it's going to be a big fucking deal. Yeah. It's going to be a big fucking deal. Because we've had gay people win, but they were all in the closet when they won, like Jodie Foster and yeah. Kevin Spacey. And or it's interesting when you have a lot of straight actors win for playing gay roles. Oh, all the time. There are only two gay people in the movie Milk, and they both play straight people. That's so funny. every gay person in Milk is played by a straight person. And I get in this argument sometimes Which, with yeah. actors, and they're like, but it's acting. And you go, yeah, but none of our community has gotten the chance to represent our culture. Right. So every every time like the movie Milk happens, you have Dustin Lance Black and Gus Van Sant explaining to a room of straight people, they everyone's doing research on how to uh, sissy yeah. that walk, you know? And you're like or you could just hire some hire at least 50-50, you know? Right? <laughs> have some experts in the room. I know, it's like yeah. It's crazy how it feels like I don't like I mean the internet and technology feels so bad in so many ways but in other ways it feels like it's opened all of our eyes and it's just taken us a few seconds to adjust to the light and now we're all talking to each other about the stuff we always should have been like gender parity. Oh my god. And and pay and and, and equal pay. I hope that action and change is actually coming. I think it is. I think it's already happening. Part of me is like these things blow up and there's a huge uprising and then the news cycle moves so quickly that it's like, oh, nobody's talking about it anymore. (laughs) The Golden Globes happen and then by the time the Oscars get around, it's just not as exciting. Me too is not as exciting. Well, at least Casey Affleck wasn't there though. And that was good. Yeah. Being very political, being very topical. So topical, so political. I need to talk about gay shit. (laughs) (laughs) Do you feel like... I know what I want to talk about. Do you feel like you've been... um, like run into any pigeonholing and auditioning, either like not being taken seriously um, for straight I roles had, or not being considered for. I luckily uh, get to play a lot of straight roles, and I've had several agents tell me that they're glad that I'm able to pass. You know, which is like a word that's still used. Really. Yeah, which I'm not super interested in, but. I, I don't know. I, yeah, I would think of it as acting. Yeah, I also think like aggressive energy is seen as male, which is why someone like Hillary Clinton has always been maligned as like a power hungry lesbian, yeah. you know. And I just happen to be a fairly aggressive person, <laughs> and so, uh, and so therefore male. But um, I actually had a really interesting audition the other day for something that will remain nameless mm-hmm. uh, for a gay character, and I the casting director called me to tell me, um, look, we don't want it to be too gay. Okay, we we just have had a lot of great actors come in and really 
queen the house down and we were and I was like oh okay yeah no totally just really real I got it I walked into the room and that casting director wasn't there um, and the entire room was all straight people including the readers were I knew the readers they were both straight the director was straight the writer is straight and the producer from the theater was straight and I all of a sudden had that moment where I was like I don't know what your experience of queerness is or what level of gayness you think is I'm now right. just guessing yeah you know I'm like who do you who do you know what's your cousin like I don't I've been given this thing that I can't which actually I know all about you but know? now I'm like doubting but my choices because I don't know what you want me to do <laughs> even though I'm the only gay person right. in the room how bizarre it's really weird it, but it's like you know and I've talked to and again not to compare things so I'm comparing things like I've talked to like black female black female friends of mine or black male friends of mine who are told by like all white rooms like okay we want a little more urban and you're like but what is your experience yeah. of urbanity if something is a major part of the story or a major theme, I don't understand when people don't choose to have their artistic team be more diverse and more inclusive of people who might know about those storylines. Yeah. It's it's complete. It just, it just ends up being inauthentic. Yeah, it's completely bizarre. It's like we're going to do a play about... Um, pianists and then have no musician like no one has any musical knowledge or ability in the room and you're like why would why why would we do that because <laughs> we're so good at acting <laughs> acting is, it's like acting also isn't like this magical thing that every straight white male has that they can become that's the other thing too right because that's considered tabula rasa and so from there like all the great method actors are born that's right. dustin hoffman that's you know Lawrence Olivier, they can be anything. Right. But the rest of us have to just do, you know, stay in our line. Do where you are. Yeah. Hmm. There's my bitch about that. Thank you. <laughs> um, when you are feeling like you're in the dark place or you're uninspired or something like that, are there any concrete things that you turn to again and again, like a certain book that you read or music that you mm. listen to or a place you go or something like that? Working out helps a lot. It does. Like forcing yourself to work out. Like it just releases endorphins and you'll feel better and you'll feel like you can do something. That always helps. I luckily live right by the Hudson River. So I go down to the Hudson River a lot. Um, and reading fiction helps me a lot. I know I already said that, but mainly because A, I think it's meditative. I find it to be meditative because you are outward. You're um, imagining uh, experience as someone else, which immediately gets you out of yourself and gets you out of, I try to do, especially when I'm not working, I try to do one to two hours in the afternoon of just reading with all devices turned off. So we like fully power down all electronic devices. We have a cup of tea and we read for at least one hour, you know, which I'm lucky enough to afford to be able to do. Yeah. Which is nice, but if I don't, I'll go a little nutty. I miss that from my childhood. I read so much when I was a kid, and mm. I feel like now part of it is technology. Yeah. I, you know, I will waste time on my phone when uh, I, I could I have mean, been reading for a half hour. I mean, I waste so much time on my phone. I'm not yeah. saying I'm immune to that, but I've like, 
I've had to build fences around it. Also, I do, you know, a, a lot of the work I do with Fair Wage on stage is online. Right. And so I spend a lot of time doing that. And then my, you know, eyes cross and I, I want to, I, I feel anxious. I like, I check my Twitter feed in my sleep, you know? Yeah. Um, and it's also weird because it's becoming like, um, it, when I was on the show and you have to tweet for the show or do things for the show. Is that in your contract? No. Okay. They just ask you to. Not everyone did. There were plenty of people who didn't, but... You know, I was on a show, and yeah, I want the Twitter followers, and I want the fucking, you know, whatever. I want the attention, you know, because we all like attention, which is, I think, what all those platforms are, are about. But it becomes in that you, we have all, it's part of the gig economy now, right? As an actor, we've all become our own, public, our own publicists, you know, and we have to curate this image all the time, which everyone in society is doing. And it's almost that line, like, who's a public figure anymore? Like, at what point are you a public figure? There's also so much TV out there that you're like, oh, you, you're one of the stars of a TV show? Okay. <laughs> you and who else, you know? It's so, it's, it's just a really strange time. You know, you don't know. It's like my babysitter is a public figure. She was on, she's on Facebook all the time. She posts a lot. I love her. <laughs> like, we're in contact. She's really fabulous with social media. But, you know, it's like everybody. Yeah, like, people are public figures just first being popular on their social media yes influencers influencers can you imagine (laughs) sounds terrible so bizarre it sounds terrible and then they like yeah i have to endorse a product i have a friend who um was we know people who are who are who are influencers or who are actors who have like turned that into their side gig yeah we know we know a lot of people who have that it's crazy it's their full-time job too it's really weird. I don't ever want that to be my full-time job. I like saying angry things about Trump, but <laughs> other than that, I don't want to like sell face cream, right. nor do I think anyone would buy my face cream. <laughs> um, and then is there anything that you've seen recently that you want to recommend? Oh, yes. So much. I've seen a bunch of really good stuff. Um, hold on. The Death of Stalin, the film. So funny. Steve Buscemi, Simon Russell Beale. Is that Jeffrey Tambor. Older? It's new. Okay. It's uh, made by the um, guy who made Veep. Okay. It's so funny. And it does this thing, which I always wanted a movie to do. Like, they're in Russia, and they're all these, you know, Russian leaders around Stalin when he dies. None of them uses Russian dialect. Like, Michael Palin's in it. He talks English. Steve Buscemi talks like Steve Buscemi. Because they're supposed to, you know, like, why do we always do Russian dialects when you're speaking in English? Right. Just talk like you're, we know it's a movie. <laughs> It's so funny. Okay. It's so good. Um, what else did I see that was great? Um, I gotta see it with my movie pass. I love movie pass. Oh my god, I could I, I could be a social influencer for movie pass. <laughs> That's the fucking truth. I saw Fantastic Woman, which is the Chilean film. I want to see that. Oh, it's at the Eleanor Bunin, the one with the wine at Lincoln Center. Okay. You know, uh, like, there's one where you can get wine, there's and there's one, one with, with no wine. wine. <laughs> <laughs> um, that movie was so good. I think I saw some. Oh, I love Once on This Island. On Broadway. I still haven't seen that yet either. I really want it's to see that. It's great. I finally I got my tickets for um, Three Tall Women. Okay. Which I'm really excited about because Glenda Jackson is a personal hero of mine. Um, I saw Harry Potter. How was that? It's really fun. Good. Um, it's really fun. I'm excited because there's several older actors that I know that are in it, mm-hmm. and it makes me really happy that there's like fun roles for them. Yeah, and they're also, like, we're going to be doing... People we know are going to be yeah. in that play for, like, 10 years. 
It's yeah. crazy. It's gonna run forever. It's like it's like it's like the Lion King. Yeah, but for <laughs> non singers. Like for you don't have Harry to sing Potter to fans. be in it. Yeah, exactly. Um that was fun. What else? Interesting. Have you seen Angels in America yet? I ha I haven't. No. I haven't either. Um I don't it's really hard for it's it's hard for me to go if I don't have a free ticket. I'm going to see Iceman Cometh, though, which I'm excited about because my friend Calm is in that, and I'm really excited to see him in that. Um, I think what else is good I saw? That's really one of the O'Neill plays that I don't know as well. It's tough, man. It's long. It's like a three-hour, four-hour tour. Four-hour. <laughs> it's a good four. It's a solid four hours of <laughs> drunk people. Prepared. <laughs> um, I just love... I'm so excited about Handmaid's Tale coming back. Uh, I love that show so much. It took us, even though we have some dear friends on it, it took us so long to get through this series because it was so depressing. It was so frightening. Not depressing. Frightening. so scary. And so we would watch one episode and then we wouldn't watch another one for like a month. Yeah. It's tough. It's a tough one. Because I can just see the parallels and like the the short lines that would have to be drawn mm-hmm. from where we are to where that is. And it terrifies me. <laughs> I'm so like turned on or not sexually turned on, but like artistically turned on by Elizabeth Moss's oh work. She's amazing. She's incredible. I just can't, I can't, I loved yeah, her on Mad Men. She's always yeah. been amazing. The West get, Wing even, the she, West she was Wing. really young. I got to do a reading with her once and she was amazing, like just one of the most present people I've ever worked with in my life. Mm. She was so good, so honest. I just love her. I just, I think she's, and I think that she understands acting for the camera like no one, well, the very few other people. She's been doing it for people. so long. She was like, she's been doing it since she was a baby. Yeah. You know, she's so fucking good. Everyone on that show is great, though. Anne Dowd is great. Samira is great. I'm going to be better about watching it this time. I mean, I understand, <laughs> though. Together. I understand the the fear on watching it. Oh, and I saw Miles for Mary, which is... I yes. saw I saw it three times. I saw it three times the at Playwrights books. and twice at Bushwick Star, because that's my favorite company in New York, is the yeah, Mad the Ones. Mad ones. Yeah. And they, they are creating for themselves, similar to what we were talking about with Nature Theater of Oklahoma and stuff. Like yeah. They're creating their own environment. It's a very lateral process over there, which yeah. I really think is... Exciting. So excited for them. I'm so excited for them. I'm really, really excited for them. Wonderful. Well, Nick, thank you so much. Thank you. This was a long time coming, and I'm so glad we got it. I'm so to glad talk. I got to be on the, the Compass Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Compass Podcast. If you find these conversations valuable to your life as an artist and would like to support the ongoing production of The Compass, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash thecompasspodcast. Pledges start at as little as $1 a month. You'll get access to bonus content and anything you can give would be greatly appreciated. Also, if you have a moment, please rate or review in iTunes. Every little bit helps other listeners to find the podcast. I'd like to thank the following people for their generosity. The Compass cover art is by Kim Miller, music by Brandon Spieth, audio assistance from Nick Choksi, and a special thanks to Frankie J. Alvarez. See you next time.
Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the RISE Theater Directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.